This is Palm Sunday, and uh, thanks to Larry, the video introducing service was great. Uh, Palm Sunday has traditionally, for me, been one of my favorite Sundays, and I've taught on this topic repeatedly many times. It's a lovely scene, uh, Jesus riding in on a little donkey into Jerusalem to the acclaim of those in the city. And it was the fulfillment of a passage out of Zechariah that said Israel's Messiah would come in humble, seated, riding on a donkey. So it's a great theme, and for me, it was always the thought of being in that company that saw him come in, that you see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and you hear the hosannas and the acclaims, and you say, this is it, and here he is. That would have been a good time, a good place to be. Now, that is not what we're talking about this morning. So I say all that, it's a lovely theme, it's a great passage, and that's not where we're going this morning, though I'm aware of what Sunday we're on. We're instead going to be in Psalm 22 this morning. I wanted to take advantage of the fact that we have been in a series through selected songs in the book of Psalms, and Psalm 22 is the one I wanted to cover today. And Psalm 22 is not a Palm Sunday message, we could say it's a Good Friday message, so maybe we're a little bit ahead of the curve on that today. This song is written by David, but as you read through it, you realize, and theologians and commentaries realize, what David describes here does not describe elements, at least for the main, do not describe elements that are identifiable in his life. In fact, Psalm 22 is very much and very clearly about an execution which David never experienced. And so many commentators take the view of this song that this is primarily a prophetic psalm, that it's not David so much writing about something he'd experienced, and then we extrapolate, but rather that it's like Psalm 16. So in Psalm 16, it's referenced by Peter in Acts chapter 2, and in Psalm 16, which, by the way, Resurrection Sunday, it's a resurrection-themed song, that's what we'll look at next week, but Peter says in Acts 2 that David was a prophet. And so when he had written in Psalm 16 about his own death, and yet his, he's not enslaved to death or his body doesn't see corruption, Peter said he, David was writing as a prophet. This wasn't about him. Peter points out David's body is with us. It corrupted in the ground. He was writing as a prophet about the Messiah. Well, that's exactly what you have in Psalm 22 as well. So in Psalm 22, David is writing as a prophet about the sufferings and the execution of his messianic descendant, the Lord Jesus. So this message this morning, not only is it off kilter a little bit as far as the Sunday that it's coming on, but it's a, it's a little different treatment. You know, normally you try and do some big rocks as you go through. It makes the, the text simpler and easy to lay hold of. This morning, because I really want to connect the dots from Psalm 22 to the gospel accounts of Jesus' suffering, this is broken up, as you'll see on your study sheet, a multitude of ways. So this won't be as smooth uh, a delivery or a chat, if you will, but what we'll do is break it up a little bit more fully so that we're connecting. Psalm 22 says this, and this is what we see in Jesus' life and execution. Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, the church has understood this psalm to be typological of the death of Jesus Christ, so it's a foreshadowing, it's an image before it occurred, it's a picture. 
This means that David used many poetic expressions to portray his immense sufferings, but these poetic words become literally true of the suffering of Jesus Christ at his enemy's hands. The interesting feature of this psalm is that it does not include one word of confession of sin. Now we know on the cross Jesus has made sin for us, but Jesus is the innocent lamb. And so they point out there's no confession of sin. This isn't due to the person suffering on the cross for something he had done. There's no imprecation against enemies. In fact, to what Kent just shared on the introduction, Jesus calling out for the forgiveness of those who were executing him. It is primarily the account of a righteous man who is being put to death by wicked men. Psalm 22. Martin Luther said this of this same psalm, it contains those deep, sublime, and heavy sufferings of Christ when agonizing in the midst of terrors and pangs of divine wrath and death which surpass all human thought and comprehension. In the New Testament, the gospel accounts of Jesus' experience in crucifixion are incredible for their brevity. Does it not strike you if you read through the account of Jesus' suffering and you get to the crucifixion, the gospels say, and they crucified Christ. And you're like, is that it? That's, that's it of the description? Well, what you find is Psalm 22 fills in some of those details of Jesus' experience on the cross. So we'll break this up into several sections as we go through so that we can connect those dots. This is the setting. You remember Jesus on what we call Passion Week? Jesus had eaten the Passover with the disciples on Thursday night. He and the disciples then went out of Jerusalem east up the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed. That same night, if you remember, the guards and the Jewish leaders and the folks they had sent had come out and they arrested Jesus there in the garden that night and early into Friday morning, he was shuttled to the high priest and the Jewish council, which condemned him to death. He was then taken to the Roman governor, Pilate. Remember, the Jews couldn't legally execute. The Romans had to do that. He was taken to the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because he was from Galilee. Pilate's trying to wash his hands of this situation. Herod Antipas sends him back to Pilate where he was condemned to die on the cross. Jesus was crucified about 9 o'clock in the morning. There was a supernatural darkness from about noon to 3 p.m. when he gave up his life. So about six hours on the cross. So if you have your app or your Bible, open to Psalm 22. If you use a pew Bible, that's page 457. I'll be reading from the ESV. The heading to this psalm is, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Uh, no one knows exactly what that means, guys. Again, instructions for those leading worship in Israel about the time this was written. The Doe of the Dawn, it's, it's thought might simply be a melody, a known melody line that this would have been sung to. The thing we know for sure is David was the author. So verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This is a very, very well-known verse. This introduction to the song describes the separation that occurred between Jesus and God the Father when he took on our sins on himself as our sin bearer on the cross. Uh, theologically... 
within the mystery that is the eternal and unchanging Trinity, the fellowship of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit never changed. We say God is immutable, and that means he doesn't change and he can't. He can't diminish in any way. He can't improve or enlarge in any, or in any way. God is fully and always who and what he is perfectly, never changing. That's true of God the Son. But in the experience of the God-man Jesus, and by the way, guys, when we talk about the Trinity, we're just in the shallows of the water, right? If you can, if you can plumb the depths of the reality of the Trinity, you'd be God, and we're not God. When you talk about the Trinity, there's one God and three persons. And then you get to the incarnation and you say somehow the, the omniscient, omnipotent, eternal God can take on our humanity and you say he's perfectly human and he's perfectly divine and one person unmixed, unchanged in both. And you say, how do you get there? And you're like, we don't. We describe it because the Bible describes it. But what exactly that looks like, can't get there. That's okay. We'll do our best, but... We'd be God if we could absolutely understand this. In the experience of the God-man Jesus, for the first time in his existence, he was without God the Father's fellowship. We'll see this come up again in verses 9 and 10. We can only guess at what that means and what that felt like for Jesus. Remember, Jesus was perfect humanity if someone says something to you, you have a lens and a filter and you might be able to hear something of what they mean and not grasp other things. Or if you experience one thing or another in life physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, you and I are limited. Jesus was not limited in the fallenness that we have. So what he experienced in life, he experienced perfectly and fully in ways we don't and can't. So he experienced separation from the Father in a way you and I never could. He experienced not only the fellowship of the Father perfectly, he experienced separation from the Father fully and perfectly as well. He had delighted in the Father and the Father had delighted in him 24-7-365. And suddenly, in a moment on the cross, as he became sin for us, that constant and perfect fellowship was gone. So those words from Psalm 22 verse 1, they are repeated by Jesus in Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, about noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, about three. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying in Hebrew, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus' cry from the cross and the loss of his Father's fellowship was pathetic, heartfelt, and anguished in a way that no other cry, no other voice could be. On Jesus' end, guys, this is all suffering, right? There's an upside for you and me. When you cry out to God in the midst of your pain or confusion in the loss of life or friendship, when you're betrayed or forsaken, and pleading to know why, right? On one hand, life is hard and hard things happen. That's hard, all in and of itself. But then also, when you don't understand why, that becomes its own difficulty on top of whatever's going on. When we cry out to God, and when you cry out to Jesus or in Jesus' name, you're crying out to someone who knows more than we ever can or ever will 
confusion, loss, pain, suffering, loneliness, separation, none of us can get to the length or the depth that Jesus experienced that. So whatever that looks like for us, and we don't minimize this. You know, people who lose babies, children, if you're in Ukraine today and you're a believer in Jesus and your relatives are being bombed out and you say, why? When you cry out to God, why? You're crying out to a God who knows what that looks like and feels like. God is sympathetic and Jesus is particularly sympathetic. In fact, having experienced every form of human suffering, Hebrews in two different places assures us that Jesus is a faithful high priest who's been tempted in all the ways we can, and he can sympathize with us in that. So Jesus on the cross and this pathetic cry to God the Father should inspire any of us, no matter what the loss or the confusion or the suffering has been, to cry out to a God who fully sympathizes us with us in our suffering as well. Move on to verses 3 through 5. He says, so why, why? Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. On one hand, here I am suffering and I just want to cry out and say, why? And on the other hand, he's saying, but Lord, I know you can't do wrong. You're holy. You're the one we praise. When, when Israel worships, you're the one we direct our praise and worship to. You're holy. You can do no wrong. And I look backwards at your interaction with your covenant people, and this is what I see. Trouble comes their way, and they cry out to you like I am now, and you come down and you deliver them. And so you read a book in the Old Testament like the book of Judges, or you read some of the periods in the Kings, and that's what you see. Israel's in trouble. What do they do? They cry out to God and God sends a deliverer. So the thought is, I'm crying out. I don't see help. I don't understand this, but I know this. You're holy. And I know when I look back on your interaction with your covenant people, I know that you have delivered them when they've been in a situation like I am. But there's a problem. This comes up in verses 6 through 8. So he says, yet, I know some things. I'm suffering, I'm confused. Some things I don't get, some things remain true. Verses 6 through 8, he says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. This is what they say, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue for he delights in him. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, you've been true to your people in the past, but there's something that's unique about me. And he says, I'm not a man. I'm a worm. I don't know how that sounds or comes across. If you say worm to me, I'm thinking of the earthworms that we have around here you go fishing with. This is not what he's talking about. So the word used here means you might call it a grub or a maggot. And that's what he's talking about. It's a maggot. So, the kind of worm he's talking about is a maggot. So think of rotting flesh and the little maggots that are crawling and eating the unclean dead flesh. 
That's the term Jesus is using. So you can imagine that language, it would sound like I am a despicable, unclean, lowly thing that doesn't deserve God to interact, intervene to save me. Now, this kind of worm had one use. And I love this. You know, you have so many pictures in the Old Testament of Christ in his saving work, and this is one. The usefulness of this mag, uh, maggot lay in this. It could be crushed, and its red color was used to dye clothing red. Can you get a lesson out of this? So these mag you remember in the ancient world, red clothing and purple clothing, it's what kings wore. Because it was very, these colors were very hard to come by. Shells that had to be crushed, or in this case, maggots. Can you imagine how many maggots would have to be crushed to form a liquid adequate to stain or to dye your clothing red? It was a lot. So Jesus says, I'm a maggot, and the maggot's use in that day was to be stained red. And you think of Jesus' blood poured out for us, that red blood, think of the mercy seat in the Old Testament, covering over our sins so that we are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. It's implied, it's not stated here directly, but it's certainly the imagery is there. So I'm a maggot, I can't be saved, I'm lower than a man. Think of this, Philippians 2 is a great passage about the condescension of God the Son. So God the Son condescends, he comes down from heaven to earth, he puts on our humanity, Philippians 2. And then he condescends and he moves lower to the, the form of a thief or a criminal on the cross. Now remember, for humanity to be a thief crucified on a cross or a criminal crucified on a cross was the lowest form of humanity. But Psalm 22 takes Jesus a step further again, Philippians 2 to a criminal on a cross, sorry, Psalm 22 to a maggot in the ground. That's how low Jesus went for you and I. Verses 7 and 8, with that theme of I'm a maggot, God's not going to come in and save me. The despised one, Jesus was mocked. This is out of Matthew 27, verses 39 and 44. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. That's from verse 7. They were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, that was his claim, king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were there crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Right out of Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, here's another yet statement, Yet you are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So Jesus had been in fellowship with the Father from earliest memory and before memory from the womb, from womb to birth to the breast to youth 
and on, there was never a time Jesus knew in life in which he wasn't in the enjoyment of his Father's presence. And that history, that reality for Jesus to have been in fellowship with God as a man on the earth, there's been no one else ever like that in the history of the world, that, that history of only knowing the fellowship of the Father. No one on earth could cry out like Jesus did in verse 1 because no one else had experienced that unbroken fellowship. No one else had been from before birth in more constant fellowship with God than Jesus. No one else could face the loss of fellowship with God as a thing entirely unknown. He had never known this before that moment on the cross, and no one else had ever or could ever cry out to God from a greater depth of loneliness than did Jesus. And again, for our benefit, if you've ever been lonely, and everyone is at some point, when you cry out to God in Christ, you're crying out to someone who knows loneliness to a depth and breadth that we can't know, we're incapable of knowing the depth and breadth of loneliness that Jesus knew as the Father removed his fellowship. Jesus was forsaken by the Father, mocked by those around him. And then at verse 11, the mocking turns to the real physical aspects surrounding Jesus on the cross. Look at verses 11 through 18. He says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax, melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Instead of a sympathetic crowd facing Jesus at his death, there was no one around who could help, though there were certainly some sympathizers. You remember some of his disciples, at least, his mother and some of the other women that had supported him were there at the cross, but there was no one who could do anything there to save him, to help him. Verse 12 says, so for, for Jews or in this day, these are graphic images, right, that he's portraying. There weren't literal bulls at the cross, but he wants us to see what it felt like around the cross. So verse 12, strong bulls from Bashan. If you remember your geography, Bashan's on the east side of the Jordan River Valley. It was the best grazing Israel had. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were on that side because of their flocks and their herds. So when you think of a bull of Bashan, you should be thinking of the biggest. Have you guys seen a bull? You, if you haven't seen one, they're huge on the front end. They've got big horns, narrow hips. They are extremely powerful. And if one was after you, you'd be in trouble. So it's this graphic image of this huge, strong beast with horns that could severely hurt you, kill you. That's what it felt like for Christ on the cross. Verse 13, open-mouthed, ravening, roaring lions. You know, if you go to the zoo, our well-fed lions, they're laying on their belly most of the day. 
They don't get around much. That's not what we're talking about. This would be like a charging lion, mouth open, fangs open, and claws extended. Verse 16, dogs. Dogs were despised generally in the Middle East. It's thought that these would be like jackals, a group of jackals circling its prey, surrounding and biting and piercing. Out of Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44 again, extrapolating the imagery to the reality there, those with the strength of the religiously and socially well-placed were there, the chief priests, and the scribes were there mocking Jesus. The physically powerful and armed Roman soldiers were there, the ones who pounded spikes through his hands and feet and eventually put a spear through his side were there. Even the lowest level of society was there. Remember, the criminal, both criminals initially on the cross, they're the condemned like Jesus. They're the lowest form of humanity. Even they were wagging their heads and castigating Jesus. On the merely human level, Jesus' crucifixion felt like an animal that had been hunted down, run to ground, bound up for sport, and tormented for the amusement of the onlookers. Plenty of people around, but no one to help. Now, you know, we typically stick very close to the text, and I'm going to take just a little, little byway here to speculate just a little bit. Beyond the human enemies present, I do wonder what was going on in the unseen spiritual realm. So I'll get to a text that speaks to this a little bit, but speculate with me for a minute. In C.S. Lewis's depiction of the death of Aslan, his Christ figure in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he has a nod to Psalm 22. Aslan on this altar is surrounded by ogres with monstrous teeth. Think lions. Wolves, think dogs and jackals, and bull-headed men, think the bulls of Bashan, and then evil spirits, cruels and hags. The text says all those who were on the side of the white witch. Aslan's great enemy there and all her cohort are there mocking Aslan in his death. In Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, there's a Satan figure that's circling Jesus during his suffering as he's being beaten and again around the cross. And then more to the point, perhaps for us this morning, Charles Spurgeon suggests that demons were howling with delight around the cross of Christ. Now, it's not clear from Scripture what evil spiritual presence might have been present at Jesus' crucifixion, but it's not unwarranted to consider the possibility. In fact, we know from the Passion Week account that Satan, by name, entered Judas and was part of betraying Jesus. Were some of those around the cross of Christ inspired in their hatred by demonic agency? Per Spurgeon, were demons present and delighted at what appeared to be their greatest victory? Hold that thought. Colossians 2.15 says this. God disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities through Christ, triumphing over them and putting them to public shame through Jesus' death and resurrection. The language of Colossians 2, like 2 Corinthians, is this. When a Roman general made a great victory, he had a victory parade in Rome, and he brought his embarrassed, shamed defeated foes with him that's the imagery of colossians 2 at the cross 
it looked like Satan and all the evil spirits were having their victory parade at Jesus' expense. Jesus looked like the shamed foe that was being defeated by them. But the tables are turned, of course, at the resurrection, and that's what Colossians 2 refers to, that ultimately Jesus' death and then resurrection was the means by which God was defeating our foes. Ultimately, Jesus was leading them as the shamed foes that had been conquered. But you don't see that at the cross on Good Friday. We don't get that until Resurrection Sunday. What did Jesus' crucifixion feel like? The physical suffering itself. Remember, he'd already been flogged. The skin and muscle of his back, sides, and arms were torn open, ragged and bleeding. He would have also been bleeding from the heavy crown of thorns that had been pressed on his head. And last, the large spikes were driven through his wrists and feet to secure him to the cross. I've done a message on this a long time ago. You could look up online, but there's all kinds of... We, we know, we have a lot of information about what crucifixion did to the human body and why it took so long for people to die, typically, from that means of execution. Look at verse 14 and 15, though. This is Psalms 22 description of Jesus' suffering on the cross. As Jesus' lifeblood drained out from wounds of his flogging as well as his hands and feet, it felt like a pitcher of water being poured out on the ground. Not only poured out, but drained so thoroughly that it was like a broken piece of pottery, a piece of clay fired in the furnace. You know, if you took a piece of clay, you fired in the furnace, all the moisture that was in it, it's gone. It's nothing but a brittle, dry, dry, dry piece of clay. Not the slightest bit of life-giving moisture. All that was left was to be lowered into the driest of dust, the dust of death. Verse 14 says, His heart felt like wax, heated to melting, draining like thickened blood, slowly ebbing away. The whole process of crucifixion, your body weight made it hard to breathe. You've been bleeding, you're losing blood, your blood pressure is going down. Your heart is racing, trying to keep up. Verse 17, he's dehydrated and distended by his weight on the cross. His ribs can be seen and counted, protruding through his thin flesh. Verse 18, looking down from the cross, the sight that greeted Jesus was that of his executioners dispensing with the last possessions he had on the earth, literally the clothes off his back. Remember that the Romans always stripped those who would be crucified. They wanted not only to inflict the greatest amount of pain over the longest period possible, they wanted the person to be as shamed and embarrassed as possible. John 19 records it this way. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see those to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, Psalm 22, verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus' suffering on the cross was unique in all of history. Others were crucified, but no one could suffer as fully as Jesus did. One who had never been without the fellowship of the Father, one who had never done wrong, one who could experience life perfectly and fully on the cross, experience separation and suffering to a degree that can be described to some extent, but certainly cannot be fully understood. With that as a thought, if the Lord's Supper in the future seems rote or dull or boring to you, 
Sometimes when we come to the Lord's Supper, this is true for me. It's like, Lord, I know there's so much here that should raise my heart, that should engage my mind and my affections and my emotion. But so often I come and I, just, I, don't, I don't feel up to the task. I just don't feel like I can fully engage the way I should. Psalm 22 is a great place to go because it's a way to remember what Jesus endured for you, for me, for us. When you read that, it's not just some distant objective picture that's painted. It's for us. That's what Jesus did for us. When you're not sure God really loves you, remember Psalm 22 and God's total commitment to you in Christ. Romans 8 trades on this theme. Romans 8 says, If the Father would give up His Son for you, His only begotten, loved Son for you, there's nothing He wouldn't do for you. There's nothing He wouldn't give you. If He's given us His Son, He'd do anything. He's given that which is above asking, above price. Does God love me? He gave Jesus for me. Psalm 22. When we're tempted to judge God as unfair... In light of the suffering and injustices in our own life, and friends, almost, almost all of us will have these moments where something happens, the bottom falls out, we don't get it, and we just want to say, God, this isn't fair. You're not fair. For ourselves or in the broader world, remember the perfection of God's love and justice met in Christ on the cross for us. That, friends, God can't be any more just. God cannot do wrong. It's an impossibility. He is righteous entirely. He not only couldn't do wrong, he doesn't want to do wrong. Everything he does is just. It's never less than that. And the cross proves that. Because if God the Father wants to forgive us, he can't simply say, I forgive you. Sin has to be atoned for. When you read Exodus and Leviticus especially, and you read about all those sacrifices, what is going on? God's holy and we're not. God's holy and we're sinners. And something has to be done with that sin. God is absolutely just and his justice is perfectly on display in the cross of Christ. His justice in order to, to forgive sin is fully met at the cross, but also his love is fully on display. God can't love us any more than he has than Christ on the cross. He gave the thing he loved the most his son. So it doesn't matter what happens in your life and mine. And guys, I don't say this glibly. So I was thinking about this this week. It's like, Lord, what might happen in my life in which I would be tempted to say, this ain't fair. You're getting this wrong. You know, and I, I feel like for myself, I've had a blessed life. There's so many things I've not suffered. You know, if I'm in Ukraine today and my, my loved ones are being bombed or murdered or pillaged or whatever am i saying with the psalmist why we're asking you for help and no help's coming no matter what it is and life is confusing right even for christians we don't understand why god's causing or allowing some things but you can never get past this god is never less than just and he's never less than loving he can't love you more he can't love you less christ has been given on the cross the Gospels in Psalm 22, God's love and justice for you, for us, for the world, they are perfect. They can't be improved on. Verses 19 through the first half of verse 21, there's a final plea here. But you, O Lord, don't be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. 
Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. There's that one final plea, and then it changes swiftly. Luke 23, 46 says this, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now in Psalm 22, verse 21 is split right in the middle. The first half of Psalm 21 is the suffering servant crying out from the cross. And the second half of verse 21 is deliverance has occurred. And it says nothing in between. Not a thing. It doesn't describe it. It doesn't say what happened. All we know is you get to the second half of verse 21 and deliverance has occurred. So verses 21 through 31, the second half of verse 21 says, you have past tense rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I have been delivered. You, you came through. You answered my prayer. You delivered me. And from that sudden cry of praise, everything changes, and the rest of the psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving. These verses uh, don't give us any detail, just the fact of salvation and deliverance, and after that, it's all praise. They ultimately represent Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his reception in glory in heaven. Look at verse 22, and we're going to break this up a little bit as we go. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Deliverance has been occurred. I'm going to come back, and Father, I'm going to praise you in the midst of my covenant brothers. Verse 22, Hebrews 2, verses 11 and 12 cite, Jesus is not ashamed to call them believers, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus takes that verse to himself. Verse 23 here in Psalm 22, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, even the one on the cross. He has not hidden His face from Him, but He has heard when He cried to Him that that cry for help was ultimately answered. This is from Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus cried out to God, Psalm 22, God heard him. Now, here's the key. Jesus' cry for deliverance was not answered by God the Father on Good Friday. God did not save Jesus on the cross. He died. He really died. That cry was answered on Resurrection Sunday. Acts 2, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And you'll see this talk about the Father raising the Son through the New Testament. Bill Bider had one of them from Ephesians 2, I think it was, in his Sunday school lesson this morning. So the cry was ultimately heard, but he wasn't saved from death. He was saved from remaining dead, that, that prayer was answered in the resurrection. Verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever, and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, 
and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. All families of the nation shall worship before you. You remember Genesis 12, 3, what one of the promises of God was to Abraham? That all families on the earth will be blessed through you, and that blessing was always ultimately through Jesus, the Messiah. Genesis 12, 3. Revelation 5, 9. For you were slain, Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Connect that to verse 27. All the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord because of Jesus' suffering on the cross, because of his resurrection. Verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. The highest and the lowest in humanity brought together in Christ. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Guys, are we proclaiming the truth of Christ to the coming generations? It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus on yeah, 19, John 19.30 says, it is finished, redemption fully accomplished in Jesus' death on the cross, our justification realized in his resurrection. He has done it. Salvation is of the Lord and Jesus has done it and done it all. And friends, when we share the gospel with others, we need to disabuse people of this thought that they have anything to do with their salvation as quickly and fully as possible. Because their salvation and yours and mine has nothing to do with what we've done. It's everything to do with Christ, his death, his resurrection. He has done it. We don't. We enter into the blessing of what he has purchased for it. But in those conversations you have, disabuse those people that we have anything to do with our salvation. What's the only possible response to this love and devotion? Psalm 116, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. That's the right response to Jesus' death for us. Uh, what's the answer to that question? Verse 1, why did God forsake Jesus at the cross? Because in the eternal counsels of God, the perfections of his character and will could best be displayed in Jesus' death and resurrection. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the perfections of God's justice and love are most fully seen. In Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection, the Father heaps affection and glory on the Son, and the Son obeys and honors the Father, bringing the world with Him to bow in worship and blessing. 1 Corinthians 15. To the glory of God through Christ we are saved. Sorry, that's to keep me honest. Did you hear my ringer? <laughs> it works better this way if it's a countdown. The alarm keeps me on my toes, but not so much this morning. To the glory of God through Christ, we are saved, we are sanctified, we are enrolled in the Lamb's book of life. We will join the choirs of heaven, the saints old and new, in endless praise, joy and delight, because He has done it. Uh, rise with me if you would, and this is on your study sheet, and it'll be on the overhead as well. If these words reflect the tone of your heart, why, pray with me.
Father, help us to see in Jesus' death on the cross the fullness of your love for us and the completeness of our salvation. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us even to death on the cross. Help us to know that love as a present reality. Help us to honor you with